0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Today.
1: Today. Today.
0: Today with Jeff Finds.
1: We are taking the gospel to the world,
0: pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher.
1: One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today.
0: Today. Today with Jeff Finnes. My name's Aaron and you're listening to Today with Jeff Finnes. Welcome back to the program as we continue this episode that we started with Pastor Jeff last time, looking at the relationship between truth and life. Now, Pastor Jeff is going to continue to tell us the truth that the devil is very present in this world and how God can help us resist temptation and live the life that he ordained for you and I. But for now, let's join Pastor Jeff and finish this message together.
1: Aren't we inquisitive people by nature? Don't we ask why about everything? It starts when you're like, why, mom? Why, why does the sun shine? Why, why is it I found a few why's. Uh, why is abbreviated such a long word? Okay. All right. Why is the third hand on a watch called a second hand? Don't these things bother you? Uh, if nothing sticks to Teflon, how do they make Teflon stick to the pan? That's always bothered me. All right. Why is the man who invests all your money called a broker? Doesn't that bother you at all? I mean, really? All right. Why, why don't you ever see the headline psychic wins lottery? All right. Is there something wrong there? Why doesn't glue stick to the inside of the bottle? I've always wondered that. Now this next one: you know that little indestructible black box that is used on planes? Why can't they make the whole plane out of the same substance? That's my question. One, two, a couple more. When you, when you choke a Smurf, what color does it turn? Should vegetarians eat animal crackers? And my personal favorite... If you throw a cat out a car window, does it become kitty litter? I don't know, but I'm willing to try. I'll tell you right now. Only, here, here's the point. Here's the point. We are inquisitive people. God knows we're inquisitive people. And if somebody tells us to do something or not do it, we want to know why. Now, stay with me. Let me give you an example. The Bible says that racism is a sin, right? So it tells you do not be a racist. But it tells you why. It tells you Why? If you want to know that, read Acts chapter 17 sometimes. And Acts chapter 17 gives you kind of a point of reference. It says we all come from the same stock. You know, through one man, the whole world comes. All are created in the image of God. You didn't earn the right in eternity past to be born. It was a gift to you. You didn't decide where you were going to be born. God decided that. You didn't decide your color. God decided that too. As a matter of fact, the Bible says God appointed all these different races to show his multidimensional creativity that he's just not stuck on one boring pattern, that there's many. So all are equal and all are sacred because we all come from God. So he says, because the creation is this way, this is how you should live. Don't be a racist because you have no right to be. We all come from God and created in his image. Now, ask any typical person on the street if racism is wrong. Here's what they'll tell you. Oh yeah, it's wrong. Most people, most people. Oh yeah, it's wrong. But when I ask them why, I love to get into these conversations at Coffee Clash, Starbucks, wherever. Why is racism wrong? Well, what would their answer be? Now, think about it. Think about it. They'll say, I'm not sure in ultimate reality. I don't know if God exists. A matter of fact, he probably doesn't. We're probably all animals or a collocation of just chemicals. But racism is wrong. <laughs> and I'll say, why? And they'll say, everybody knows. I'll say, are you serious? Uh, there have been plenty of places in the world and still exist where everybody knows that there's a bad race that needs to be exterminated. Can you say Rwanda? Can you say Armenia? Can you say Bosnia? Can you say Germany? To say everybody knows it is not a point of reference. <laughs> it's amazing. That, you'll come up with an ethical code, but you have no foundation. You have no appeal on which to make or base your claim that anything is right or wrong. Now, I bring that up because I, have, I run into people that say, you know, I'm not a Christian because I'm a thinker. That's what they'll tell me. I'm not a Christian because I'm rational and I'm a thinker and I'm too analytical to be a Christian. And what they mean by that, and of course, you know, that ticks me off, but what they mean by that, and uh, they don't know they're about to get into about an hour and a half conversation, but, but, but what, they, what they mean by that is... I can't be a Christian because Christians only think subjectively. They only base things on their feelings. There's no rationale for it. And when they say that, I love to say things like, really? Really? Tell me something that's wrong and then tell me why. And they'll always say, because everybody knows. It's kind of like the evil thing that I do. You know, I say, hey, people say to me, how can you believe in God with all the evil in the world? Remember that little thing I do? So wait a minute, if there's evil, then you're admitting there's good. And if there's good and evil categories, there's got to be a moral law to tell us what the good and evil categories are. And the moral law has to be absolute. Otherwise, the categories of good and evil aren't absolute. And who can give an absolute moral law other than an absolute moral law giver? And who is an absolute moral law giver other than God? So without God, there's no such thing as evil because without God, there's no such thing as an absolute moral category to give us good and evil definitive categories. People say, well, why do we have to have God to give us the law? We have to have God to give us the law because we ask the question of evil in the category of life and its sacredness. We're bothered when little children die in a tsunami or when there's evil dictators like Hitler and children go to the gas oven. We say, how can God exist with evil? But the reality is, without God, there's no definitive category of good and evil. And then I like to ask the person, now, who who are the thinkers? You're the one not asking the second question. If evil exists, there must be a God because there must be an absolute moral law to give us the definitive categories. I'm simply trying to use all kinds of illustrations to get to however it is the way you think to say this. When God says don't do something, don't steal, don't cheat, don't drink alcohol in excess to become drunk, Don't sleep with your girlfriend before you're married. Don't commit adultery. All of these things, he does so because he's saying, I created the world and this is how it's meant to function. And because I love you, don't do these things. And if you don't do them, your life is going to turn out much better. But if you break them, you're breaking you. There's got to come a time in your life when you you get to that point of whatever it is you're about to engage in, that one thing that the devil is getting, and it could be, again, it could even be doubt when something bad, it could even be that something tragic happens in your life and you have the temptation to go away from God. That's still a temptation. Whatever it is, the Bible tries to teach you. First, there's ultimate reality. That's the therefore. The ultimate reality is this, therefore, live your life this way. Until you have a change of mind, that when you're on the precipice of that thing that is destroying you, until you change your mind, you say, wait a minute, hold on a minute. I'm not not doing this because I'm afraid God's going to come down and zap me with lightning. I'm not doing this because when I engage in this, I'm breaking me. I'm breaking me. And I'll never... I'll never become whole. I'll never become all that God wants me to be. The abundant life will never be mine. I'm breaking me. Whatever lie I'm hearing right now, no matter how bad I want to do this right now, no matter how strong it is, I'm breaking me. That's the first step, but it's not the only one. It won't work alone. And the second step is the one that really this message is about. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 18? Beautiful passage. He says, "'You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth.'" Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. I used to think, wow, Jesus, that is an arrogant statement. I mean, that's pretty arrogant. You listen to the truth, you listen to me. Well, that's because he's the creator and sustainer of all that is. He's just speaking to He's saying, look, I know how the world works. So if, you're, if it's truth you're looking for, you're going to listen to me. And I'll give you ultimate reality. If you're not looking for truth and you just want to do your own thing, you don't really care what the Bible says or what I say, then I'm really irrelevant to your life. So when we say Jesus is not relevant to our life, it says more about us than it says about him. Until you have a change of mind, until you have a change of mind, you won't understand that when you violate truth, you violate life. When you violate life, you violate yourself. You're breaking yourself. Now, here's the second thing. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, stay right there. Notice, he says you've got to arm yourself with something and it's got to be an attitude. This Greek word here is the, addit- is the word for thought. There's a thought you've got to put in your mind, and you have to arm yourself with it. And whatever that is, it's going to change your heart. Now, I'll get to that in a moment. Let's talk about what he means first. Uh, do you know that Dane Johnson, before he was a pastor, was a repo man? Did you know that? <laughs> Can you imagine? You know what a repo man is, right? When you don't pay your bills on your car, Dane sneaks into the neighborhood about 3 o'clock in the morning and breaks into your car, hot wires it, and drives it back to the factory. I, don't you, can't you imagine him loving this job? The problem is when you have a job like that, sometimes the person wakes up in the middle of the night and wants to kill you. And Dane's got some great stories, but one of my favorite stories is, well, I think it was a Ferrari. He went into this neighborhood and he's got to get into this car. And the owner comes out because the alarm goes off. And he's, he says, what are you doing? And Dane said, brother, I'm, I'm taking your car back to the factory. It's been six months, you've not made any payments. And the guy says, well, what if I go get a gun? And of course, you got to know Dane. Dane just kind of looks at him, yeah, whatever. He goes into the house. He comes back out. He doesn't show Dane the gun, but he puts it in his pocket like this. All right? And the guy noticed Dane was not afraid. And so he looked at Dane and he said, how about I go get my bullets for my gun? And Dane, Dane said, I just looked at him and said, you're embarrassing yourself. Get back in the house. Now, here's the thing. If you've got a gun in the living room and you've got trouble in the kitchen, it's not going to do you much good, right? This is a military term. It means arm yourself. Stay with me. When you became a Christian, you learned some new truths. You learned some things. But if you only have a knowledge of it and you don't arm yourself with it, it does you no good. If you have a knowledge that Jesus died for your sin, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know that, but then when you sin, guilt's still going to come. And it depends on how you deal with it. If you just know it, but haven't armed yourself with it, you know what you're still going to do? You're still going to get depressed. And you're going to be sad and think, God doesn't love me and he's abandoned me because I've done this bad thing. But if you're armed with it, what will you do instead? Worship. What? You mean when I fell, I'll worship? Yeah. Yeah. Because you'll fail, and then you'll realize what you've done, but then you'll say, wow, God is so good. Past, present, future sin, I am forgiven. I think I'll worship a while. You see? If you're armed, you move into worship. If you just know it, you move into sadness and depression. Same thing is true about passages like, cast all your anxieties on him. And he, because he cares for you. If you just know that, then when something happens that makes you nervous, your future, your money, your job, you know what you're going to do? You're still going to get nervous and you're still going to say to yourself, well, I know I should cast my anxieties on him because he works everything out together for good. But you know, I just can't do that. I'm overwhelmed. If you just know it, that's what will happen. But if you're armed with it and you're ready at the right time and the right place, you know what you'll do? You'll move forward, encourage, and you'll say, man, I don't know what's going on here and I don't even think I like it, but God is large and he's in charge. And the same God who took the chaos out of the early moments of the universe and brought beauty pattern and design to it's the same God that can take the chaos in my life and bring beauty pattern and design to it. So I'm going to move forward in courage. You see, it's different than knowing it and being armed with it. Same is true. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Something bad happens in your life. If you know that only when something bad happens, you'll run from God. Because you'll think he's abandoned you and you'll try to solve your problem with everybody else. But if you're really armed with nothing, can separate you from the love of God and you really believe it, what are you going to do? You're going to run to God. Because you're going to know he will sustain you. He'll give you the wisdom that you need and the courage to go through it. And you can trust God. He's doing something special in your life. There's a difference between knowing something and being armed with it the writer here says you've got to arm yourself with something, and here's what that means. If you come to the precipice of this one thing that's destroying you, if you're ever going to get on top of it, you've got to arm yourself, not just know, you've got to arm yourself with something, and you arm yourself with a truth. Now, do you remember what we said about Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite quotations? Stick with me, almost done. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. The essence of the master, or this matter, rather, is to understand that this self of ours... This other man within us has got to be handled. Do not listen to him, turn on him, speak to him, condemn him, upbraid him, exhort him, encourage him, remind him of what you know instead of placidly listening to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. I love that. I read it about six times a year because it reminds me that there are times in your life it's a battlefield of the mind. You're going to be thinking one way and somehow you've got to take the way you're thinking, the emotions, the things that you're feeling, and you've got to grab them by the scruff of the neck, by the collar, and lead them to what you know to be true. And when you do that, that truth will defeat the one thing that's destroying you. Okay, Pastor Jeff, got it, got it, got it. What's the truth? What's in the passage. He says this, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with this attitude. What? See, the problem with the passage, the reason it's difficult is because the first three chapters, he's talking about suffering, tribulation, and then he switches the topic to sin. Just like that. So how is it, what, first of all, what am I supposed to remember? Now, before I give you that, and you know what it is probably on now, I'm telling you, some of you are caught in something. It's destroying you. I'm trying to tell you that the Bible is teaching you here, there is a way for it to lose its power over you. There is a way to defeat it. There is a way well, it, will, it will not entice you. It can lose its power in your life. You can kill its power over you. Whatever that one thing is, and the way you do that is to have a change of heart And to remember on the precipice of whatever this thing is that Jesus Christ suffered in his body for you. Now notice it just doesn't say suffered. Suffers in his body. Tim Keller gives us a good explanation of this when he says this. What this means is that the death of Jesus Christ when understood, it confronts me profoundly when I'm faced with temptation. To the one who is on the precipice of disobedience, Jesus cries out from the cross, I did all this for you. So you could die to sin and live to righteousness. How then can you do this sin? Will you put your own hands around my throat? Have I not been struck enough? Will you hit me one more time? Will you account what I have done with so little value that you will do this to me? Will you design to frustrate the very goal and aim of all my suffering for you? What's he saying? Oh, please stay with me and get this. Please. He's saying this. Fear will never cause you to overcome this thing. It won't. God, you know, God knows that He's not going to motivate you to do anything through fear alone. Why? Because we're rebellious creatures. Starts out when we're young. You're not the boss of me. We don't like that type. People ask me all the time, Pastor Jeff. I would believe that Jesus was the Son of God if God would have sent Him not to a manger, but down with a lightning bolt. I am the son of God, run. (laughs) God could have done that. Why not? Because he's not after fear and authority, he's after love and compelling. So rather than become a thundering Messiah, he becomes a suffering servant. Love is the thing that's going to change your heart. And what he's saying is when you get to that point when you're about to do this, if you'll have a change of mind and realize, man, I'm about to break me, and then you think, man, I'm about to break Jesus all over again. Is that not enough that what he's done for me? The thought here that he has, and I wish we had time to go into it, he's saying when the one thing comes, if you'll speak to yourself and remind yourself that his love, God's love for you, is infallible and voluntary and set on you at an incredible cost, and you will find that the thought of aggravating Jesus' pain fills you with such great grief that sin loses its power over you. Now, stay with me. Right now, I've got you about here, but we, we're not finished. You've had this experience in your life at some point or another. I, I had it with my dad. I did something when I was 16 years old. I've told you about it before. I've never told you exactly what it is. That's one of the things that I'm not going to be transparent. That's going to be between me and my dad. But I remember thinking my dad is going to kick me out of the house. Remember? And I was amazed when my dad sat down on the bed beside me, put his arm around me, said, it's okay, son. Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. I'm going to help you through this. You did wrong. But then it was the next part of the conversation that really got me. Tear in his eye. He wasn't angry. He was sad. He said, Jeff, your mother and I have sacrificed so much so that you would not have to do things like this. He wasn't trying to make me feel guilty. He was trying to get me to say that I'm better than this. Jeff, we've, we love you. Love yourself the way we love you. Isn't that what happened to Joseph? Joseph had this relationship or, or non-relationship with Potiphar's wife. We don't know Potiphar's wife's name, Mrs. Potiphar, we call her. But in Genesis 29, here's what we read. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. That whole statement right here is only two words in the Hebrew, sex now. That's what she was saying. What was his response? No. How can I do this thing against God? God wasn't, it's Potiphar's, why? God. Self-control is not suppressing your desires. see, Most of us think we're going to win the victory over this thing. When it comes, suppress the desire. No, no. You know what happens when you suppress your desire? They just get stronger next time. It's not not going to happen. by. Suppress it, suppress it. No, what you have to do is this. There has to be all of the desires and loves of the heart must be reordered by an overmastering supreme love. Which means that this desire that you have, you don't suppress it. You put something on top of it that's greater than that so that when the time comes, you choose the greater. Let me me give you an example. Jacob and uh, Rachel. Remember what the Bible says about Jacob? He worked seven years of hard labor for Rachel. I don't know if any woman's worth seven years of hard labor, but he evidently thought she was worth seven years of hard labor. Seven years of hard labor, but then he still didn't get her. But what does the Bible say? Jacob worked seven years, but they seemed but a few days to him. Why? He had reordered the loves of his life. Is it that he didn't love his spare time because he didn't get any? No. Is it that he didn't love vacation time, didn't get any? It's just that he loved Rachel more than all those things. What the Bible is saying is you've got to get to a point where you don't suppress the desire, or whatever it is, but you love Jesus. He's your primary love. And you remember what he did for you on the cross that you don't have to do this anymore. And there'll come a time when this thing will lose its power because it's secondary and subsequent to your primary desire and love for God. Man, you know, what it, you know what this really is? Remember we talked about when we were in Africa that the lion would get in a death stare, and that's why you carried a stick. You bang on the ground. Thank goodness they're easily distracted. But he looks, you know, think, imagine a lion looking you right in the eye. And it's the day, he's, shall I eat you or not? <laughs> and the way to defeat the lion is to change his attention. And I'm telling you, this is what this passage is about. You're engulfed in it, your mind is turning, turning, turning. distract yourself by thinking on something else. And the thing you think about is the cross. Here's my challenge to every one of you. Go find yourself a cross. Wear it here, wear it here, put it in your, anywhere. It's, it's the most recognized symbol in the world. Now, folks, I'm not telling you this, we're not having a cross special in the bookstore right now. <laughs> Matter of fact, do not buy your cross there, otherwise you'll ruin this. You'll be suspicious. Don't do that. And some of you already have one anyway. Find yourself a cross and carry it with you. I'm going to make the commitment that that's, that's my new goal in my life this year. And Anytime I'm faced or confronted with that, I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to hold it and I'm going to remember. It's a change of heart. It's a greater love. And this works. It worked with, I, it's one of the main reasons I was able to overcome my anxiety disorder, for those of you who still suffer from it. When you have anxiety disorder, your mind starts turning, right? I'm not feeling well. My heart's beating fast. I might be dying. I should get to the hospital. And then it just, vicious circle. And the more you think about it, the worse it gets. I've learned that if I can distract myself from, if I can stop it and head it off to the past, that everything mentally and physically slows down. So what I will do at night, my attacks usually come at night, because everything stopped and my brain shuts down and then it starts kicking in, I will repeat the Lord's Prayer over and over and over to distract myself. And then I will replay in my mind my favorite 18 holes of golf. <laughs> golf and God, 2G, golf and God. And in about 10 minutes, that's distracted this and the anxiety's gone. I'm onto something else. The thing you're gonna distract yourself with is far more powerful than around a golf, It's the love of God on the cross. Remember what he did for you and you will be victorious. Amen? Amen. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your love and we ask for forgiveness where we often forget. Your love is so great. What you've done for us on the cross is just mind-boggling. It's a matter of eternity that we're accepted by you on the basis of what you've done for us, not on the basis of how good we are. And there will be seasons of failure, we know, but nothing can separate us from your love. I would pray in Jesus' name right now that those who have given up the battle of winning victory over this thing would re-engage. For those who have experienced a life where they're just not what they ought to be and they're not what they ought to be because, because there's something that's destroying them that they would recognize there's a real battle and they've got to have a change of heart and mind that they are breaking themselves, and that they don't have to do this to think on the cross, that those sins have been paid for, and we're no longer slaves to sin, and we can be more than overcomers. Help us to distract ourselves with that which really matters is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fiennes. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fiennes wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me want to dance and sing. With every single breath I'm I will break this offering. You are my wonder, you make the wonder. Today. Today. Today.